It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Felix Cavalieri, whose group Felix Cavalieri's Rascals will be performing, among other hits, Groovin', A Beautiful Morning, Good Lovin', and How Can I Be Sure, at the Golden Nugget Las Vegas on Friday, June 7th, as part of the resort's 52 Fridays concert series. For ticket information, go to goldennugget.com, and for everything about Felix Cavalieri, go to felixcavalierimusic.com. And Felix, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. You have been called, and I'm going to quote Stephen Van Zandt, who I think is worth quoting. He said, some people may not realize it, but the Rascals were the first rock band in the world. And of course, he said that, <laughs> he said, he said that at your induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How do you, how do you respond to that? Well, I, I appreciate it. I, uh, I, I think that, you know, like you have to understand that Steve's from New Jersey and New York, New Jersey and Connecticut and the whole area of like that area really ad- adopted the Rascals very early in the English invasion of pop music. We were the first band to really come out and kind of like uh, challenge, you know, the Brits uh, in terms of, um, you know, writing your own songs and, you know, making the charts and having a really good singing group and playing group. So I think there's a tremendous amount of respect there that is really kind of like qualifying that statement. And he also, because of his background, clearly he was having a little fun with it, uh, coming from New Jersey. He also said, in the same context, he said, well, you're known as the king of blue-eyed soul, but he said, to sound that black, you had to be Italian. Well, that's pretty interesting, too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, seriously, I mean, there's a a tremendous amount of uh, attachment for us from the community, and it still still lasts to these years from all those those, uh, hits we had in the 60s when everybody else was British. It was clear he was the right guy to introduce you for the induction. I'm not going to ask the standard question about how did you feel, but you've gotten four Hall of Fame inductions. You've had a Grammy nomination. It's quite a career, and you continue to perform. You actually, because you're a co-writer on so many of the hits, do you even have to perform? You could just sit and collect the royalties over the years. Well, you know, that's the interesting thing. That's really not true anymore. That's one of the big changes that the Internet has done to our business. Those royalties that we used to sit home and collect have diminished considerably. And uh, I hate to tell you the reason. The reason is because of the Spotify's and the Pandora's and the Apple Music and uh, all that stuff. They've killed us, just like many industries have been destroyed by uh, the Internet. So is ours. So that's why we're all on the road. We're all on the road because, uh, like, there's a necessity to go out and, you know, basically uh, supplement your income from what used to be there. I'm sorry to say, I just came back from Washington, D.C., where we went to the uh, Senate and the House to try to make certain people who pass laws aware that, you know, we're not protected by uh, any, any, any legislation. That's interesting. In other words, are they, are they not even paying, like, a percentage of a penny on royalties, or they're just not paying anything, or they're just obviously not paying the, the standard royalty that you would normally All of get. The above. Yeah, gotcha. gotcha. I mean, it's a mess, and, yeah. and you know, everyone, everyone is affected by it. Now, of course, the 
Yeah, I mean, not to go into a different subject, but I mean, the people like Taylor Swift, they're able to make a challenge, and they have challenged. She's challenged Apple Music. You're not going to play my stuff un- unless you, uh, you know, change the way you pay me and others. But most people don't have the power of Taylor Swift, and I, I applaud her for that. You know, most people have to just sit back and take it. But you know, all Americans have the right to go to lobby in your behalf. And I just came back. I was representing uh, ASCAP. Uh, with a, a few other people from, from the Eagles and, you know, uh, various people. Because, I mean, it's, it's a major thing for songwriters. It is. And just to, for some of our listeners who may not know, ASCAP is a music licensing group. There's, a, there's also BMI and there's others. CSAC, I believe, is a third one. Right. And there may be others. And clearly that was the established model prior to the Internet where artists who wrote and performed would get royalties based on radio play, television play, etc. Well, you know, I mean, seriously, it's, people don't even know about it, but I mean, you're, you're actually, you're, you're very erudite about it. You know what's going on. Yeah, you know, when in other words, you see or hear like uh, somebody's music in a film, uh, we'd like to be paid for that. Yeah, you know, we'd right. We'd like to be paid. Uh, what a concept. Actually, <laughs> you're, making, you're making a living. But, you know, the, the law that was passed that governs what's going on with songwriters and publishers was done in 1941. So, <laughs> I think it's time for a change. Exactly. But, you know, by the time we get a change, we're up against some pretty powerful people who don't want to pay, quite frankly. I mean, I love, uh, listen, I'm a, I'm a big internet user. You know, Spotify, I love it. Uh, but you know what, man? Pay, pay, pay your bills. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, that's why I wanted just to briefly talk about that before we talked about your career, because that's important for artists to be recognized, for writers and, and performers to be recognized, not just by the adulation of fans, but also by the remuneration of checks. Uh, so, yeah, that's why I wanted to talk a little bit about it. How about your bank? We'd like to be recognized by our bank. Yeah, too. that also would help. <laughs> yes, <laughs> sufficient funds would be helpful. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I... That's yeah. what I've been doing lately, and, uh, you know, um, I, I really still enjoy performing. I still enjoy seeing and hearing the fans' reactions to the music that they kind of grew up on. So it's part of my life, and I, uh, you know, I, I've been doing it for so long now, and uh, thank goodness I'm still able to do it, and I still have people that want to hear it. Yeah, it's an interesting combination of being in fairly good health and being able to perform and travel, and at the same time to have a fan base that really enjoys the music, and I'm sure that you get people too that introduce their kids and grandkids to the music as well. I was just listening to a couple of the hits the other day, and it's amazing how the energy is in the record. I, I say record rather than CD or even digital file because it was originally on a record, right. usually 45, but 33 when it was the album. But the point is that when you hear it, it's the energy, but it's also the fact that it's very infectious in a good way. Oh, I agree. You know, well, you know, it's, uh, like I say, we, we recorded for Atlantic Records and, and, you know, the staff and the people who were on Atlantic Records were absolutely, totally committed to making great music all across the board. And that uh, is something that I will always be thankful for because that music is still around in many, many cases and uh, just proud to be part of it. Absolutely. You were a classically trained pianist. Right. You were born in Pelham, New York, which, just for our listeners, where is Pelham compared to New York City? Is it upstate or near? 20 minutes. 20, 20 minutes. minutes away. Okay. You know, basically, it's a suburb, and uh, it's a great place to grow up. You know, it really is, because you had the advantage of uh, 
the you know the country and the city. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. How did you decide to go into rock in the sense that you were classically trained, as I mentioned, but you also had a chance to listen to a lot of artists, Ray Charles, Marvin Gaye, Sam Cooke, and others. Did they influence you in terms of where you wanted to go musically? Oh, yeah. Basically, you know, well, uh, my mom really would have liked me to be a classical pianist, you know, and, uh, you know, that's that's how I got my training, which I'm very fortunate to. However, that really didn't sing to me because a very simple reason, you know, you can't create when you play someone's music. You, know, you have to write what they wrote. Well, I play what they wrote. And that caused me to, you know, have a little problem with the fact that I really wanted to create and write and, and do things that were not done. So obviously when I heard something that was as raw and as fresh as rock and roll in its early days, it just really appealed to me that there was kind of a freedom in there, you know. There was, and you, you, when you started, you had the, the Hammond organ, you started to work with different people, you attended Syracuse University, I believe, Correct. and yes. you formed a group called the Escorts, and then you became, which is, I find interesting, a, a backup musician for Joey D and the Starlighters, which is right. also an iconic group that go into rock and roll history as well. So you really had an interesting mix of influences as I mentioned, classically trained, but at the same time exposed to people, as I mentioned, again, Ray Charles, Marvin Gaye, Sam Cooke, and others. Right. And then you formed this group. And then in, I guess, 65, you decided to form the Young Rascals with a group of guys. Did you, right. did you know where it was going at that point, or did you just form your living in the now? And then the story, of course, is that you get together with a promoter, uh, Sid Bernstein. But did you get a sense that you were going to be going somewhere even before you hit it? Well, I mean, interesting that you say that because, you know, when, uh, when I first put the group together, we went to my parents' house in Pelham to rehearse, to practice, put together a so-called stage show for the clubs that we were you know, about to embark in. And uh, my parents' house was right across the street from a high school. And when we looked out the window from the rehearsal basement, there was a crowd of kids out there. So we knew kind of we had something good at that first day rehearsal. We knew there's something good here because these kids are out there listening, you know? So other than that, you really have no idea. The audience decides whether, you know, whether, you, whether they like you or not. We, we can't force feed them, you know? And, and right. so we had, we had a good audience reaction from the first note. So what you're telling me is that the rehearsal basement in your parents' home was not soundproof. No, because <laughs> it was it was yeah. it was just you know like I say we had a piano down there right, we brought right. drums in but I mean obviously the people the, the kids yeah. across the street of the high school heard you liked it but your they parents lined up yeah your parents I guess were very supportive in that sense that they let you practice and rehearse and I'm sure from your parents' generation they they're probably wondering what is it that these guys are playing here well. You know, I, I don't really think uh, anybody knew what the heck was going to happen here. You know, we just, uh, you know, like, uh, we just uh, had a great time. And, you know, I had a concept. Uh, my concept was to make a great singing group and a great playing group. And what I did is I kind of drew on members, on people who had been kind of the spotlight in the bands that they were with prior to joining, you know, the Rascals. Right. So we had a really strong uh, you know, I, I, I called it an all-star cast in our days. So, you know, people really, really took to it. We had our record deal in six months from that, inception. Yeah, that's amazing when you think about it. It doesn't happen too much. Right. But, no, but anyway, doesn't. I'm proud of the band. Uh, 
you know, I, I, I enjoyed working with them. I just wish we had kind of like lasted a little longer as a unit instead of breaking up, which was the silliest thing that could ever be done. But, um, you know, I got really no complaints. And you talked about the breakup and indicated that there really wasn't a stated reason for the breakup. Am I, am I correct on that? Well, I mean, the normal reasons why corporations and partnerships and things break up are embezzlement, somebody stealing somebody's wife, uh, alcoholic drug problems. We had none of those. None of, no, nothing happened that I'm aware of that was any kind of like, uh, you know, it's just uh, the word I use is stupidity. <laughs> you don't break up a winning team like the Golden State Warriors. They're winning every year. Right. And there's a good reason for that. They're great. Well, we were pretty darn good, and, and I, I still don't see any reason to break up a team. You don't have to. You don't have to live in the same house, you know. You don't have to kind of share the same, uh, you know, friends, et cetera, et cetera. This is business. Right. It's music business, and that's what, unfortunately, you know, we didn't realize at the time, and 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 it's a shame because the ones who have stayed together through the test of time, have really benefited from that in in a lot of ways that uh, I think we have not. And one of them, of course, would be financially. The second would sure. be. You know, and kind of like this um, historical kind of status that you could say by, you know, staying. And, I, and I'm very pleased to say that, you know, I have stayed for a long period of time. I've been doing this for over 50 years, and, you know, that, that ain't easy. No, it's not. Well, let's take a break. My guest is Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Felix Cavalieri, whose group Felix Cavalieri's Rascals will be performing at the Golden Nugget Las Vegas Friday, June 7th. For ticket information, go to goldennugget.com and for everything about Felix Cavalieri, go to FelixCavalieriMusic.com. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. There's something new at the Neon Museum. The emerging technology of light mapping brings old signs back to life. Forgotten artifacts of our past that once blazed in the Las Vegas night are reanimated in a dazzling immersion of sight and sound. You've never seen anything like it because there's never been anything like it. Brilliant, a Neon Museum experience. Performances nightly. Join the experience now at neonmuseum.org. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Felix Cavalieri, whose group Felix Cavalieri's Rascals will be performing, among other hits, Groovin', A Beautiful Morning, Good Lovin', and How Can I Be Sure, the Golden Nugget Las Vegas on Friday, June 7th, as part of the resort's 52 Fridays concert series. For ticket information, go to goldennugget.com, and for everything about Felix Cavalieri, go to Music. Dot com And it is music. So you're a double threat in that sense, Felix, because you are writing and performing and you also produce. And I want to talk a little bit about that as well. But when you sat down to co-write some of the hits of the Rascals, did you have, I hate to ask a cliche question, but it must be asked. Did you have a favorite of all the hits? Oh, uh, no. I, I think basically, you know, they vary from uh, decade to decade. <laughs> you know, there's different uh, reasons for writing songs. Some of them are. Uh, kind of like very love-oriented, basically. So obviously, those kind of songs, you know, when you think back to those wonderful memories, they really resonate. And some of them have to do with things like, for example, like 
People Got to Be Free, which was a uh, situation where I was involved politically with candidate for president, Robert Kennedy. And, you know, just really was very saddened by his assassination there. And so they all have a different feeling, a different meaning. And, and, and so the word favorite really doesn't come into play. That It's just, uh, you know, I, I really just every time you hear something, it, it evokes these memories, which is exactly what the audience does. I'm sure that when they hear these songs, they say, wow, gee, I remember what I was doing when that was when that was out. And uh, that's why we enjoy playing for everybody, you know, because I, I see that in their eyes. Yeah, and that's got to be a, a certain satisfaction that knowing that material that you created and co-wrote and perform has that effect on people, that it's a commonality, I guess. Really, you're connecting with people on basic levels here. Yeah, and, and, and the way I, I, I describe it in my show is that we did not have the Internet or the iPhones or the uh, you know Netflix or the FaceTime or all that stuff, Facebook. We had the music to connect us all. We had music to connect us all. And so that's what we try to do is to create that connection about the, uh, you know, the kind of memories and the kind of feelings that everybody was on the same musical page. And uh, we kind of communicated that way. There's one song in particular, I guess you have stated in the past that people tend to interpret one way, but you had a different reason for it, and that was grooving. Uh, you mean as far as the reason for behind that song? Yes, on a Sunday afternoon. In other words, people oh, were yeah. thinking well, of it I as... Mean, you know, very simple story, uh, you know, that I also kind of use sometimes on stages. You know, most of us who are musicians and, you know, we, we kind of work on the weekends. And the amount of uh, female uh, that like that is uh, uh, nil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, if you want to... Um, if you want to uh, really like uh, establish a relationship, you better write a song or something to uh, you know make them feel like you love them and that uh, you know uh, they are number one on the parade because uh, you're working every Friday and Saturday. It doesn't go over too well. So groove it on a Sunday afternoon is perfect. Yes, indeed. But most people, I think, think of it more as just a nice day out in the park or with a picnic or whatever it happens to be. But it's clearly more meaningful for, as you say, the musicians who have to perform on Friday and Saturday. Yeah, and it's been like that. And I'm sure anybody who does this uh, or has done this for a living or for pleasure knows that uh, this, this is the case. And, you know, it's kind of, it's a little mundane, but it's very true, you know, because the uh, the spouses or the girlfriends or fiancés, they, they really, uh, you know, they put up with a lot from us. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you think about it, not only working Saturday and Sunday, but a lot of times traveling, maybe you're not right. in touch for weeks on end, you know, that it's type of thing. It's a tough thing for people to understand, but, you know, it's worth it in a lot of ways, and, and, and of course, it takes a tremendous understanding on the part of, of, the, of the others. Yes, indeed. When did you decide to go into the producing side of things? Because you've produced albums for such people as Laura Nehru and others. You also did some, uh, you had a duet album, but how did you end up deciding to do some production versus performing and writing? Well, uh, you know, basically, you know, when, when, when I first started listening I, I listened to people who were playing their instruments, such as the Ray Charles, you know, and the Jerry Lee Lewis as a Fats Domino. I listened to people who were singing, such as Smokey and Marvin Gaye. I listened to people who were writing, you know, at that time was kind of just starting. But, you know, I paid attention to the fact that some of the people, the old, older people, were actually writing their songs and going way back, like Paul Anka, he wrote his own song. 
And I also noticed a guy by the name of Barry Gordy who was producing songs. So I wanted to do it all. I wanted to do everything. Why not? I mean, if you're capable of doing it, you know, why not do it? So in my case, uh, uh, you know, I, I really wanted the Rascals to be produced by, uh, I say ourselves, but what I meant was myself. I wanted to do it. So I demanded it, and we got it from Atlantic. And, you know, we had the good fortune of having a tremendous staff that they put on a bunch of kids, but still, we were in charge. So I always wanted to do all of the above. And so when it came up that a fellow who's now a very powerful, wealthy man by the name of David Geffen was managing Laura Nero and asked me to produce, I, I, I jumped at it. I, I, I loved it, and I also was able to have a lifelong friend. And also, I think producing is a little bit different than performing in the sense that you're generally in one place, so you're not on the road for a while, you're consulting Yeah, and, with and basically what you're doing when you, when you produce is, is you're creating something out of either your own or someone's musical thought pattern. So you're trying to bring that into, uh, you know, reality to, uh, you know, a medium such as making a record. Now, when you do that, though, Felix, are you using your background not only as a performer and a writer, but also your earlier background with being educated in a classical sense? Do you take that? Is that part of the mix, too? No, you know, this is a different kind of thing altogether. I mean, obviously, you use all of those tools, but, you know, I mean, not to be, you know, too, you know, kind of boring about it. But, I mean, the, the object is to make a, a product that people want to hear and buy. So there's a, there's a criteria there, you know, and in the old days, the criteria was, will they play it on the radio? Right. Because if they right. didn't play it on the radio, you really didn't have much of a chance of getting it, to, you know, sold or heard, obviously. So you, you, have to, you have to fit into a mold, you know what I'm saying? And that mold had a certain amount of rules on it, which really is not easy. You know, it's still not easy because... You know, you think about it. I mean, there are people who broke the two-minute, thirty-second, three-minute barriers, but not too many. Yeah, so you got to say it right. all and do it all in two minutes and thirty seconds, three minutes. That's hard. And uh, there's an art to it, and there's a science to it, and there's a skill to it. And you don't necessarily have to be a musician, you know, to know what other people want to hear. It's just a very fascinating and interesting process, and uh, you know, I still enjoy trying to solve that puzzle. You're right, there are very few records, as they call them, or, or recordings or music that, beyond a certain point, that can break the barrier. Don McLean, I think, had about one of the few, but it's an interesting challenge, and you're looking at it from the point of view, as you mentioned, as a producer, as opposed to the artist who's recording, and you need that to have that direction. As a producer, you give that direction. That's your job. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's fun, especially, you know, when, 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 when you win. You know, but uh, the bottom line is it's, it's, it's a challenge and it's uh, something that, you know, has become very important because, you know, a lot, a lot of artists, you know, they really don't have an idea of what this subject is about. Well, it's, it's a tough thing, you know, and, and as I said, I don't want to get too technical here, but I mean, there's a lot of people that don't realize that, you know, when companies pay you to make a record or to make a product, they want to make money. Right, exactly. So you, you, you have a challenge between that and then the artist saying, well, I just want to make music. I just want to make music. Well, okay, but, you know, like, it's a two-way street, you know, and, and that's, that's the interesting thing, is which side of the street, you know, you've got to make everybody happy, including the people putting up the money. Hmm. 
Well, that's the skill, isn't it, or the talent? Well, that's part of the challenge, you yeah. know what I mean? Because some artists get really ticked off when you change stuff, you know? Right. You mentioned earlier on when we began our conversation about New Jersey, and that was a big area for, in that general East Coast area, but primarily New Jersey, New York, big fans of the Rascals. And then there's another area, isn't that? I'm trying to reconcile it in my head because Hawaii has been a big fan base yes. for you guys as well. So that's a totally different accent than the New Jersey accent. Well, that's a stroke of luck, that one. That's a stroke of luck. And, uh, you know, I think uh, that we have two gentlemen who are no longer with us to thank for that. They've passed. But there was a fellow out there who owned a radio station and uh, another gentleman called The Beard who was a uh, a DJ who loved our music. And they they created that whole thing for us. And, boy, I've always been thankful because there's, there's no place I'd rather be famous than the islands of Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> how, how often do you get a chance to go back there? Well, I don't get back as much as I used to, but we used to go twice a year, you know. And, uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of our... A lot of our crew and staff has said, well, okay, we'll see you. We're staying. Right, of course. And this, exactly. Of course. Some of them are really still there. How many times so you... They've, they've made a home there, and uh, it's a very special place with rascals. And besides Hawaii, how often do you get into Las Vegas? Because I know you perform here several times a year. We do. Of course, Vegas being the you know, mega capital of uh, entertainment, it's uh, it's it's. Uh, it's always kind of like wonderful to get out there because the the audiences are not necessarily from Nevada; they're from all over, you know. So it's it's pretty good, and uh, you know, it's something that you know I'm very happy to be able to do because, you know, as I say, if there's if there's an entertainment capital, that's it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, do you remember the first time that you guys performed in Las Vegas? I don't. I remember the first time I performed in Las Vegas. When was that? Oh, God, that was a <laughs> That was when they had the old strip. Ah, yes. They had the Desert Inn. I was with a group in one of the lounges at the Desert Inn, and uh, that was my first taste of showbiz. <laughs> I mean, real showbiz. Right. And, and uh, I, I tell you, I loved it. I, I, I learned a lot. I really felt that this is something that I could do, you know, and uh, I, I, I hate to say it vague, but I learned not to gamble. <laughs> yes, of course. No, no, I understand totally. I've been living here a long time, and I, and I don't play at all. I don't even play music, so you're ahead of me on that as well. The interesting thing with fans, too, whether it's Las Vegas or in other cities that you perform in, you have, a, I would call it a career-long, lifelong relationship with fans, given the impact of the group over the years. When you see the fans after the show or during the show or before the show or bump into them on the road or just on the street or at the airport. What's the typical reaction of people to you and the group? Well, you know, uh, there's a really very deep connection in a lot of cases that uh, you, you cannot, you know, kind of make up because they really felt the... Uh, uh, how should I put it, the, the kind of like energy and the lyric and the musical kind of like connection that was made between us and them, between it and them, uh, to a, 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 a very deep degree, they, they kind of really, they, they know us and they feel like they belong with us and we belong with them. And it's something that's very difficult to explain, but it's, it's, it's a wonderful connection that they have with their uh, their uh, youth in most cases. 
Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Felix Cavalieri, whose group Felix Cavalieri's Rascals will be performing at the Golden Nugget Las Vegas on Friday, June 7th, as part of the resort's 52 Fridays concert series. For ticket information, go to goldennugget.com. And for everything about Felix Cavalieri, go to felixcavalierimusic.com. And Felix, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing everybody. And uh, sorry about my water. (laughs) (laughs) Understood. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Hey, hey.